This is episode number 65 with Josh Tickle. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl and Open Wide. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Before I introduce today's guest, I want to tell you two very exciting things. You can now order my second book, Open Wide, a radically real guide to deep love, rocking relationships, and soulful sex. And all you have to do to get your hands on a copy is head to melissaambrosini.com forward slash open wide. And on that page, you can also get access to my free online open wide masterclass that Nick and I have created just for you. It is epic and you do not want to miss out on this. The second super exciting announcement is that if you follow Nick and I on Instagram, you'll know that we have kicked off our open wide tour, but we still have two more stops, Adelaide and Perth. Now, this is a celebration of Nick's music and to celebrate the release of my book, Open Wide. Imagine a TED Talk meets Coldplay concert. It's going to be a fusion of music, meditation, and motivation. And tickets are selling super fast. So head to nickandmelissa.com to get your tickets today. Josh is a journalist, futurist, author, and award-winning film director whose movies fuel The Big Fix, Pump and Good Fortune have been shortlisted for Academy Awards, shown in the White House, won awards at the Sundance Film Festival and have been viewed by over 50 million people worldwide. That is just amazing. His first book, From the Fryer to the Fuel Tank, jump-started the biodiesel movement and raised billions of dollars for the algae fuel industry. And his second book, Kiss the Ground, How the Food You Eat Can Reverse Climate Change, Heal Your Body and Ultimately Save Our World is out now. And in today's episode, we chat about how the current agriculture model is affecting our health, his journey to where he is today, why you want to get out of the supermarket and into the farmer's market today, the connection between our food and our climate, what we can do to be agents for change to preserve beautiful Mother Earth for future generations, why you need to know your dirt, why the soil is the most important part for good health, plus so much more. And for everything that we mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes and that is over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 65. Guys, this is such an important episode. Please get everyone you know to listen to it and let's bring on the amazing Josh Tickle. Josh, so great to have you on the show. But before we dive in, can you please tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? Oh my goodness. What I had for breakfast was a banana and a handful of superfood pills. Nice, 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 nice. Now, I'm so excited to have you on the show and I want to congratulate you on your latest book, Kiss the Ground, How the Food You Eat Can Reverse Climate Change heal your body, and ultimately save our world. And I just read that it's soon going to be turned into a full-length documentary film with Leonardo DiCaprio as the executive producer, and it'll be narrated by Woody Harrelson. That's amazing. Well done. Congratulations. How awesome is that? I'm so excited to have you here. And this topic is so important to me and it's close to my heart. So I'm excited. Thank you for being here. You are completely welcome and excited to be here, excited to be with your listeners 
who I assume are primarily in Australia, but I'm sure all over the world as well. Yeah, no, we're pretty global, actually. Majority in America, Australia, we're all over the world, which is super exciting. Fantastic. Well, great, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So Kiss the Ground gives cutting-edge science to reverse global warming, create clean, healthy, abundant food, and get rid of the poisonous chemicals that are harming us, our children, and our pets, all while rebuilding our most precious resource, the very ground that feeds us. So thank you for the work that you are doing because I don't think it's taken very seriously. So can you tell us how our current agricultural model is affecting our health? Well, essentially, whether you live in the United States or Australia, no matter really where you are in the world, if you eat a conventional Western diet, what we call in America the standard American diet, SAD, you're eating the majority of your food from four crops, really soy, corn, hay, and wheat. And most of those crops turn into processed foods, which go into our bodies. And there's this weird dynamic where we're consuming those foods. And in the consumption of those foods, we're really promoting the way those foods are grown. Meaning, as you vote with your meals, you tend to buy that which is then produced by the manufacturers of those foods. So it in a way, it's a catch-22 because people say, well, what else can I eat? And of course, we'll go into that. But in a way, it reminds us of how much power we have as eaters to change the system that makes our food. So how did you get into all of this? Like, Where did it all start for you and your interest in climate change? And how did it all begin for you? It actually began for me in college. I was an economics major and the idea of infinite growth based on this mystical infinite resource base just didn't sit right with me. The more I looked at it, the more that the economies of the world were based on a finite grouping of resources, mainly resources from the Earth's crust. And the whole model that we based sort of Western civilization on, for me, just didn't add up. I mean, what happens when... You have 10 billion people, then you have phenomenally less resources to go to each person. So I really started asking, is there a different model? Is there another way to produce the basic necessities for humanity and to thrive, not just to survive? That sent me on a mission, a personal mission, where I ended up doing organic agriculture as a volunteer on farms across Europe. Uh, and that led me to find biodiesel, which led me to a veggie van that I drove across the country to books. And But the investigation has always remained, and that is, if the current model of capitalism is in fact based on a lie, which I believe it is, then what's the alternative? We talk about three essential models of doing business as a society. The current model is now what we call degenerative, meaning it degenerates the original resources. So whether that's soil or air that we breathe or the water that we drink or some other terrestrial resource like copper or gold or zinc or aluminum, these are limited resources. And the way we do business as a globe right now takes them away. It reduces the amount available. So sometime in the late 60s, early 70s, this term sustainable came about. And the idea of sustainable was, well, can we sustain the situation that we have? Can we sustain nature? Can we sustain each other? Is a good idea, but that's also based on a fallacy in that we want to sustain a degraded situation. Let's say at the time, the late 60s, United States, England, uh, India, China, were experiencing massive amounts of pollution, massive amounts of early warning signs that the system of capitalism that we have today is not functioning for the majority of people. So the new idea, and really where the investigation of Kiss the Ground, the book that I wrote, but that I had a lot of other contributors pulling together to put together, 
including the Kiss the Ground nonprofit in California, the idea is something called regenerative, meaning can we supply the same, if not more, of the basic resources that human beings need, including food, water, shelter? Can we supply those resources? But can we regenerate the foundational resources, the air, the water, the soil? And that leads into a conversation about regenerative food, regenerative agriculture, and ultimately a regenerative lifestyle. Mm. So what do you predict if we continue to go down the way that we're going? What do you predict? As a global society, we've kind of become addicted to the degenerative model of consumption. Um, people call it different things. They call it the the accumulation culture, the consumption culture, or capitalism version 1.0. But we can see the signs now of what's what's the future is going to look like. We've, we're going to add two to three billion people by 2050. And we're going to add those people into a, an ever more fragile ecosystem that has these feedback loops happening. Of course, you know, in Southern Australia, you just experienced these, these huge bushfires as a result of temperature spikes. We in Southern California experienced the same thing, largest bushfire in California's history, almost wiped out our house, very close, came a couple of hundred meters from our home. And now, of course, the mudslides that have wiped out whole towns. And if you look around the United States and around the world, these climactic events are happening at the same time that population is getting very tight in large urban areas. So we've got big heat islands, which are our cities. We've got huge heat vortexes. We've reduced the amount of water in the soil. We've sent it into the atmosphere. So look, the future, if we do nothing, is predictably bad. It is more and larger storms. It is more and larger heat waves. It is more and larger fires. The climactic events will continue to feed into one another producing all sorts of weird side effects that we can't even see yet. That's not a future that I'm committed to for my kids. And I, I don't really think it's a future that anyone's committed to. I think it's just a future that we don't know what to do. So that's just like, well, let's just watch some uh, apocalyptic TV because it's almost become a form of entertainment. What's, how bad is it going to be and what's it going to look like? Mm. And with the current agriculture model being particularly dangerous for our children, I love that you talk about this. How is it linked to ADD and ADHD among other childhood diseases? Can you tell us about that? Well, the promise of the green revolution, and that's the revolution that gave us things like genetic engineered seeds and enhanced rice, the promise was more nutrition per person? How do we feed the world, right? The reality was, since the late 1970s, when that program really began in India, in China, in the United States, we can track the use of pesticides globally. And what happened was an incremental or small increase in the per acre or per hectare amount of calories produced an incremental, a small amount per acre, but an exponential amount of chemicals used, meaning to get a very small increase in yield, we use exponentially far more chemicals. In the United States, for example, it amounts to three pounds of toxic chemicals per person per year, all of which is sprayed onto our food. Well, it doesn't take a, you know, a rocket scientist a genius to tell you that if you spray chemicals onto your food, you ingest them. So fast forward to today, there are 200 peer-reviewed studies that link the spraying of agricultural chemicals. Remember, these are chemicals that are supposed to help our food to ADD, ADHD, uh, prenatal disorders, birth defects, uh, pediatric cancer, and the list goes on and on and on. So essentially, we're killing ourselves with the chemicals that are supposed to be feeding us. Mm, it absolutely blows my mind that people are still 
eating conventional fruits and vegetables. You know, it just blows my mind. Like my wish is that everyone gets out of the supermarket and heads to the farmer's market and you go to your organic farmer's market and you purchase your produce from them and you talk to them and you you know you know how it's been grown i've been to my farmers i i i've been to my farmer's farm i i've seen my kale where it's grown i i know where it's come from but so many of us you know like you said we vote with our food we vote with our dollar and we're walking into these big supermarkets and we're tr- we're putting our trust in these organizations that don't necessarily have our best interest at heart. And I want everyone to just think about where they get their food from. And if they have an organic local farmer's market near them, I want to encourage everyone to go there. Go there this weekend or whenever it's on. Or if you don't have one close to you, start growing your own produce. I wish I had a backyard. I live in an apartment and I have some herbs on my balcony. But my dream one day is to have my own produce, to have my own vegetables and produce my own food. But I don't think people are taking it seriously enough. I think a lot of people kind of just dismiss it and like, oh, you know, it's not that bad. It won't kill me. But eating these vegetables and fruit with these poisonous chemicals every single day, what is that going to do to us? Well, the the short-term implications are relatively mild, and that's where we get tripped up. We We eat the product, and we don't feel bad immediately. Uh, That's because humans are very much immediate kind of animals. We, we eat with our eyes first and then with our mouths and then with our bodies third. It's not long term that we're able to gauge the effects of these things on an individual basis. But when we do longitudinal studies and we go, what is the effect of glyphosate long term? What is the effect of 2,4-D long term? What is the effect of Alar, Dimenazide, Paraquat, you know, one of a hundred different chemicals used, we see the same thing over and over and over again. These are bioaccumulating toxins. So bioaccumulation means it has to accumulate before you see the result. Are you going to get sick from eating one apple that was sprayed? Unlikely. Are you going to get sick when you become 50 or 60 years old after consistent long-term exposure? Well, look at the medical industry. Look at what's happening with a lack of ability to prevent inflammation-related disorders internationally. It's a chronic and massive epidemic that we're now seeing. Everything from heart conditions, diabetes, all the major killers are all linked to an excess of toxin in the body. So, Look, where's the number? Yes, there are many environmental toxins, but in terms of the load, in terms of the quantity that Westerners ingest, the largest quantity is going to come from agriculture and it's going to come from your food. So, you know, we're playing a very big chemical experiment for a very, very, very minor benefit. Uh, and, And it's showing. It's showing in the population as they age. Mm. And you know what? It's something that I really want everyone to take seriously. Because like you mentioned before, we vote with our dollar and we can make these mindful choices now. It's either like you pay now or you pay later. And a lot of people have this issue with spending money on organic produce. But when you know it is for your health and for the environment, that really can make you rest a little bit easier. What is the connection between our food and the climate? A lot of people point the finger at cows, but is that really the only issue? Cows are not the only issue, nor are they the primary issue with agriculture. You, you've got to think globally. You've got to think macro when you talk about agriculture. Globally, agriculture takes up $5 billion hectares. And when we look at rangeland, where we have livestock, including cows, 
That's about three-fifths or three billion hectares. The other two billion hectares is actual cropland. So the implication that cows are a leading cause of climate change, that's been uh, at the forefront of a lot of misinformation. It's not that cows and feedlots don't produce a disproportionately high amount of greenhouse gases. They do. But they are not the primary cause. Internationally, we are talking about all agriculture globally producing 20 to 25% of greenhouse gases. Livestock is a subsection of that. Cows being somewhere in the range of 10 to 15% of the total. So it's a big number for sure. It's not the main number. The main number is still fossil fuels. And that these numbers are according to the IPCC, the International pa- Panel on Climate Change, uh, and the UN, and the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the, of the United Nations. So the reality is cows being a hot-button topic, cows can be a tool for reversing global warming. You go, whoa, I thought that they were just bad. If we look at prehistoric land masses, the United States, Eurasia, you know, including India, um, Australia, there were herbivores and specifically ruminants on all of these continents. The US, for instance, had 60, 60 million bison. We now have 60 million cows. Why are the 60 million cows, which have stomachs almost exactly like the bison, why are our cows producing a disproportionately high amount of greenhouse gases? And here's why. They're stuck in feedlots and they're fed corn. Nature doesn't stick animals in feedlots and she sure as heck doesn't feed them corn. When you take cows out on pasture and you consistently move them, which is what's called managed rotational grazing, cows can actually be a tool for building soil. And soil sequesters carbon dioxide. So the more organic matter, the richer, the deeper, the darker your soil, the more that soil is going to have ability to pull greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. Cows being a critical tool of that, other animals can be playing a part in that as well. But again, it's all about dismantling the feedlot agricultural system, which, by the way, produces sick animals and unhealthy meat. Mm, This is why it's so important that we are purchasing pasture-raised, grass-fed, and grass-finished animal products, isn't it? Yes. And and look, what I tell people, I'm not an anti-meat advocate per se. I am an anti-feedlot advocate. I, I think, you know, from all of the research from any angle you want to take it from, from a global warming angle, from a local air quality angle, from a water quality angle, from a soil quality angle, from an animal health angle. There is absolutely no angle in which a feedlot makes sense, except for one, if you're profiteering from it. And that's why we have them. We have a system, at least in the US, and I've seen it in different Western countries, where governments subsidize huge monocrops, those subsidies allow farmers to grow crops they would never otherwise grow because they couldn't make any money on them. They allow them to sell those cheap monocrops to feed those animals. The animals get, get bulked up. And really, it's the middlemen who make the money. It's the, it's the beef industry. It's the grocery industry. That's where the markups are. So we're subsidizing somebody else's profits. And meanwhile, that meat that seems so great that we buy in the supermarket that's cheap is really bad for us. Hence the rise of heart attacks around the world. Mm, It's so important. I really want everyone listening to take this on board. And next time you go to whip out your wallet to purchase any type of food, really think about it. Really make sure it's not from a feedlot and it's not been sprayed with glyphosate and Roundup and all of these other toxic chemicals. Really be mindful of this because we only get one temple. We only get one body in this lifetime and we've got to treat it like a temple. And also, every time you are purchasing those products, you are contributing. 
And so it's really important that if we want to preserve our beautiful earth for our children and for our children's children, we've got to make the shifts today. Like we matter and we can make a shift. I know a lot of people kind of think, oh, well, what's what's one time going to do or I won't really make a difference. But you can, everyone listening can make a difference. And that's that's really a big theme in the Kiss the Ground book. And and I know that uh I know that as Amazon just opened there in Australia, I know you can get Kiss the Ground for Audible. A lot of people love to listen to the book. It's a great read. I read it and it's fun. It's interesting to learn about these topics in a scientific way. The push for the book is ultimately, hey, look, soil is a powerful resource. It has been overlooked in the climate conversation. It has the ability globally to sequester as much CO2, probably more than humanity has put into the atmosphere, totally. So soil can literally change the balance of the climate. But in order to do that, we're going to have to change agriculture. And the traditional way of thinking about these things as well, government will solve it for us. And look at where we're at with governments around the world. There are a few shining stars. You know, there's a, there's, a, there's a great leader now in parliament in Canada. There's an amazing leader in New Zealand, young, smart people who are very climate conscious and very forward thinking. But the vast majority of the governments of the world have gone the other way. They've sort of gone the way of these intense patriarchal kind of dominating infrastructures, which which really obfuciate uh, the issue of global warming. They're, they're putting up smoke screens or they're denying it completely. That's not where we need to be going. So to think that governments are going to solve agriculture is a fallacy, not in the near future. I think young people have to take this on as the issue of our, of our generation. And I think food is the overlooked weapon for changing and for winning the battle on climate change on the planet. And, and when I tell people, people get very freaked out about food. I'm a this, I'm an omnivore, I'm a vegan, I'm a vegetarian. I'm not asking anyone to change their primary diet. In fact, I don't even call the information in the Kiss the Ground book a diet. I call it a lifestyle guide. And when you begin to interact with your food as a function of your values, as a function of what you want in terms of your health, the health of your family. It's it's very different than a diet. A diet is something you try, most people fail at, and they give up on. Many people are dieting right now, but those diets won't last. A lifestyle is something you adapt into. So when I talk about food choices, I talk about a transition in which you begin really learning. You begin looking at the back of the boxes of the things you're buying. You begin to tweet at brands and Facebook at brands and go, this says cage-free. This says it's free-range. This says it's all natural. What does that mean? Show me some pictures. Put them on Facebook. Make a video of your process. We want transparency. In fact, we demand it. Uh, I did a great uh, little Facebook post the, uh, a few weeks ago. We got to go to Australia for Christmas, and I went around the Australian supermarket, and I took photographs of things that were different than America. Uh, and it was really interesting to see Americans' responses to things like Vegemite, but also to see their responses to things like grass-fed kangaroo meat. That is not something you see in an American supermarket. But this is the process of interacting with your food and getting that information out there, not just as food porn. Hey, here's the cool thing that I ate at lunch, you know, great little cafe on, you know, sunny side of whatever street. But Here's the thing I got. Where did it come from? Where was it farmed? Where was it ranched? What are the conditions? Is it improving the climate or is it hurting the climate? I just wish every single person listening to this to start asking questions and get out of the supermarket into the farmer's market or start growing some of your own produce and ask questions at the butcher. I know for me, when I first started really inquiring about my food and the quality of it, I would be at the butcher for about an hour and a half just talking. Like I would ask every question. I'm like, what are they fed? How big is the land? Like I would ask all the questions. And a couple of great butchers around this area, very, very uh, conscious, amazing butchers, they would have images. They'd have a booklet 
on the counter where you could see how many chickens are on each bit of land and how they rotate. And it's just really amazing. So don't be afraid to ask questions. You have a right to know. You have a right to know what you are buying, where it came from, how it was treated, what it was fed, what was sprayed on it. It's your body and your money. And at the end of the day, you're the one that's handing over that cash and you deserve to know what you are contributing to and what is going to be going into your body. Yeah, food is food is the really the pivot that I think that the millennial generation will begin to interact with climate around. I mean, this is a generation that is obviously obsessed with food. I don't think Instagram would have succeeded without food photographs. So, you know, how can we turn that passion into something interesting? How can we turn the whole chef's table phenomenon into something that actually makes a difference. Look at all the food channels. Look at all the food shows. They almost never talk about where the food comes from. That's the first question I have. Where did this thing come from? I want to put a, I want to see the farmer. I want to see the rancher. I want to meet them. I want to hear their story. I want to see their soil. Is that soil rich and black? Because if it's rich and black, it's, it's pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And if we did that on 5 billion hectares of land, and we did that on the two-thirds of the planet that has been desertified, literally turned into desert in the past couple hundred years, we would balance the climate. We would literally balance the climate of the planet. That may sound crazy, but think about it. 50 years ago, there was no such thing as corn syrup. There was no such thing as cows that ate corn. Agriculture that we know today is an invention that is less than five decades old. Why don't we invent something new that's healthy? I totally agree with you. And I am obsessed with Mother Nature. I'm obsessed with Mother Earth. I just love our Earth. I think it's so beautiful and we have so much beauty all around us. And I want to make sure we preserve it for generations and generations. So for everyone listening, you can all make a difference for your children, your children's children, and the list goes on. And you do that by simply starting to think about where your food is coming from. That is the first step. But how else can we be agents for change? Like This is such a time-sensitive issue. What else can we be doing? Or do you think that everyone listening, if we just started with the food that we're eating, that would be enough? Or is there other ways that we can be agents for change? Well, I think understanding the paradigm of soil is really important for folks. Uh, I, I came to the soil conversation unwillingly. I'd been a, a volunteer on organic farms. I was interested in, in farming I've been involved in agriculture in various capacities in a lot of different places. But I thought soil was probably the most boring thing that I'd ever heard about. Dirt. I mean, what's interesting about dirt, right? It turns out that in a handful of healthy soil, there are more microorganisms in that handful of soil than human beings that have ever lived. This is something we talk about in Kiss the Ground, the Kiss the Ground book. And when you realize that depth of life, it goes on and on and on from there. Some of the largest organisms on Earth are actually soil-based fungi. They spread for literally hundreds, sometimes thousands of acres, one living organism. And the intelligence of these organisms, they literally can transmit information from a tree that needs a certain mineral all the way across the the landscape to another plant that has that mineral. And that mineral transfers through microorganisms across the microfungal network to the tree. So you're dealing with a an extremely intelligent network of living life forms. That's quite incredible when you realize those same life forms have the ability to pull water out of the atmosphere and store water in soils, wet, healthy soils grow more food 
they grow more trees, they grow more dense vegetation. That vegetation is actually responsible for up to 40% of the water in a given ecosystem. So we think the clouds all come from the ocean. About half of the water that falls onto land, the precipitation, comes from plants themselves. So soil is the basis for this entire cycle of life, and we have the same microorganisms in our guts as the microorganisms on soil. In essence, we are dirt on legs. And that's, what, that's, one, of the, that's one of the big aspects of Kiss the Ground, the book. Mm. So yeah, we're dirt on legs. I love that. And it's really important. I just think how amazing is that, that if a tree is lacking in a nutrient, it knows where to get it from. Like, it's just unbelievable. I think when you really look into it, it is just such magic. It is magic. And, you know, we're, we're part of that magic. We've, we've kind of become disconnected from that dance. And, and part of it has been food marketing at a very young age. If you're, if you're say 25 years old today, you've spent your entire life being marketed to around food since you ate cereal. The first marketing that you had was baby food and then cereal. And those characters, those flavors, those sugary, sweet, fizzy things stayed with us our whole lives. And so we've kind of been indoctrinated into this idea that food comes from a bag or it comes from a box or a tube or a carton. And that's where most 63 or 65% of the Western diet comes from. But that has nothing to do with food. That's just a marketing ploy. And when we, when we realize, wow, we're so connected to the soil. If our body is lacking a mineral, it is because it is not present in the soil. We think that the minerals and the vitamins that we eat come from plants. They do not, in fact, come from plants. They come from microorganisms. And those microorganisms transfer them to the plants, which transfer them to us. So if soil is dead, if soil is dirt, if you stick your hand down into soil and it's dust, that means that the microbial life that should be feeding you nutrition is dormant or it is dead. That is not where you want to get your food from. But that's what the majority of agriculture looks like today. Mm, this is why it's so important. If you can visit your farmers, do it. If you can grow your own food, do it. I absolutely cannot wait for the day that I have a bit of grass where I can grow my own produce. I'm very, very excited for that. So, the soil, it's so important and it makes so much sense. I remember when I went to my farmer's farm, they don't use any chemicals and they had two rows of kale and one row of kale was for the bugs to eat. A lot of farmers spray chemicals on their produce so that bugs don't eat it to keep the pests away. But my farmer was saying, well, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to spray anything. So, I'm just going to give them food. So he has a section which they all eat, the little bugs and pests can eat, and then he has the other section which hopefully they don't come on over to. So we know now that the soil is very important. We know that we've got to be mindful of where our animal products are coming from, where our vegetables are coming from. We want to get out of big supermarkets, get into the farmer's markets or start growing our own produce, be mindful of the soil. These are all great things that we can start to do today. So thank you so much for bringing this to our attention because I want to do whatever I can to preserve beautiful Mother Earth. And I know everyone listening wants to do the same and we can make a difference. We absolutely can make a difference. And I really, really want to encourage everyone listening to be mindful of everything that we've spoken about, to be mindful of where you spend your money and where you give your money to. It's really important. But I would love to shift gears a little bit now and turn the spotlight onto you. And I would love to hear, Josh, what is bringing you the most joy in your life right now? Like, what's one thing that's bringing you the most joy? Well, for me, 
what's amazing is my daughter was just a little over the one years old when we began uh, the Kiss the Ground project. And she's now four. So she's literally grown up in and around the conversation of scientists, chefs, farmers, ranchers, uh, people at selling food, people dealing with nutritional science. Her and you know that is what she knows. Her life is 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 about that, and as a result, she has become involved in her own food decisions. Now, remember, we're talking about a four-year-old. You know, the average four-year-old diet is like cornflakes, milk, uh, chicken fingers, ketchup. You know, it's whatever you can get them to eat. Right? They generally children are not prone to eating things like cabbage broccoli, celery. Now, I'm not going to pretend that she is. Uh, she loves to eat all of the stuff that we as adults don't love to eat. But at four years old, she has a complete and very clear distinction of what is a healthy food and what is not a healthy food. And yesterday was Sunday here. Uh, she and I tend to spend a lot of time together on the weekend. So it's kind of daddy daughter time. And, and we were hanging out and she goes, you know, daddy, I want I want a snack. And I'm like, okay, great. What do you want? And she goes, I want four healthy things. And then I want one treat. She created her plate. She had some, some seaweed salad that she got. She got some orange, you know, these weren't four foods that you and I would eat together per se. Uh, but they were all healthy. And then she had one little piece of chocolate covered raisin, right? That was her thing. But she has such a clear understanding now of like, I want the majority of my diet to be nourishing my body and nourishing the soil. And, and she knows that, you know, she loves to like look at animal poop. She calls it tracking animals. What kind of animal made this poop? Is it good for the soil? So her her understanding is so rich and so connected to nature. We go to the farmer's market together. She knows everybody by name. Uh, one of our vendors wasn't there this week. She was worried about them. So, you know, involving kids in food at that deep level, it's it's not been without its challenges. And certainly still to this day, I have days where I'm just like, oh my God, I am failing as a parent to put anything nutritional into my children's mouths. But over time, to see her really get it and to embrace it and to begin to make those choices and make the connection between her body and the food and the soil and mama earth, as she calls it, oh my, that is... To me, that is the most inspirational thing I have ever witnessed in my life. So beautiful. And you're absolutely right. The more we involve our kids, the better. And the sooner you involve them, the better. So that they start to have this understanding about uh, nourishment and the earth. You're, you're so right. I wish they taught this in schools and I wish they really, you know, took it a lot more seriously. But if the school doesn't do it, we're just going to have to do it at home. Yeah. There's a lot of things that we can do as parents with our kids. You know, so many of them are fun. So many of us as parents are working. We have a little bit of time in the morning, a little bit of time in the evening, and then we get weekends with our kids. The question that I put out there in the book, Kiss the Ground, you know, we have a whole chapter of what you can do because the book goes through the science about soil. It goes through the science about food. It, you know, it really gives you a detailed history, the untold history of what you eat and how that impacts the world. But at the end of the day, everyone's got the same question. What can I do? And I don't want to disrupt my life too much. And what I say is, this is a series of lifestyle choices. One of them is involving kids. I like to take our kids to farms. I like to take them to anything that has to do with producing food, anything that has to do with nature, with animals. It's just a, it's just a constant conversation. And to see you know, my oldest begin to make the connections, that to me is an indication that, yeah, maybe it doesn't all happen in a day, but that self-awareness is going to serve them throughout their entire lives, is going to make them healthier, it's going to make them better stewards of the land. And ultimately, these are the kids that we're, we're, we're handing the planet and the climate changes to. 
they better understand how to deal with climate change. They better understand how to grow food. They're going to need those tools in a very short period of time. Absolutely. Now, I would love to hear if you had a magic wand, what would be one book that you could put in the school curriculum of every single high school around the world? Now, besides your books, is there another book that you would put in the school curriculum so that we could educate our children? Well, of course, yeah. I'd love people to read Kiss the Ground, and it's got lots of great graphs and photographs and all that information in it. So it's very visual. But, you know, it, it Kiss the Ground really goes hand in hand with another book that uh, a very good friend of mine wrote, and it's called Project Drawdown. And I should say he edited it. Paul Hawken is the editor of Project Drawdown, and it's the 100, you know, 100 top solutions to to global warming. And, and the book details the scientific numbers for what can really be achieved in a very short period of time in terms of reducing and removing carbon from the atmosphere. About half of the solutions, about half of the solutions in that book are soil-based or plant-based solutions. Uh, the other half are industrial. And it just gives that hard data, those numbers, because people go, okay, this sounds very pie in the sky. Well, would you agree with 100 really, 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 really excellent scientists in different fields who have crunched the data uh, from a global series of studies that span millions, if not billions of data points? That's what Project Drawdown does. Very inspirational, very inspirational, and very powerful text. Oh, awesome. I can't wait to check that out. And we will link to that in the show notes for anyone who wants to get it. Yeah, well worth a read. So now let's talk about your day and how your day looks, in particular, your morning routine. I am obsessed with hearing about how people prime themselves for the day and how you set yourself up for success. So do you have a morning routine and can you talk us through it? I do. I have my ideal morning routine, and then I have what often happens. <laughs> so <laughs> I have two different worlds, and and the and the the big variable in the in the stream of how my day goes is is of course my children, who are one and four years old. So uh, anyone who has kids knows that. Anybody who's going to get kids, you'll learn. But in my in my ideal days, where I get to sort of man my own ship. I wake up early. I, I generally wake up about 4 a.m. I write. That's what I do. I'm an author. Uh, and, and in terms of my food intake, I'm very, very careful in the mornings. I, I will do a piece of fruit, a lot of water, a little bit of green tea, uh, and some, some herbs. That's it. That's all I do until the kids wake up. Sometimes that's as many as four or five hours, just a tremendous amount of water, um, maybe two pieces of fruit if it's a long time. When the kids get up, I prepare a smoothie. And my philosophy on kids' food, morning smoothie, is the majority of nutrition that we're supposed to get from our food is just not there. Even in really good organic food, a lot of the soil just doesn't have the nutrition it should. So I make them a smoothie, which I know they're going to eat. It's packed with fruit. I use hemp milk. I use superfood like spirulina, something exceptionally high value in terms of nutritional content, uh, and then some trace minerals, trace vitamins, things that I know that they're not getting anywhere else in their diet. And if I have to sweeten it, I'll use a little agave, a little stevia, a little honey. I make that smoothie. And once everybody's had that, my wife, myself, the kids, I know, gosh, no matter what the day holds, we've all had that basic baseline level of brain and body nutrition. From there, for me, it's, it's a race as it is with most parents, pack lunch, get kid to school, you know, manage the little one. And, and, and from there, we're off and running. Work starts and the morning is in. But I really try and take that time before the kids wake up and I try and write and meditate and just focus in on being thankful and the great things that I am so happy for in this world. Beautiful. I love that. We do something similar with my, I have a stepson who we have 50% of the time 
and I make lots of purees for him. Now, this is my sneaky way of getting a load of vegetables and herbs into him without him really knowing. So if I put on his plate broccoli, cabbage, zucchini, and silver beet sprinkled with coriander and parsley, he'd probably think I was the cruelest person on the planet. But when I steam it and then blend it and put a little pinch of sea salt and some olive oil and a little bit of broth, it becomes like this delicious puree that he just absolutely loves. And it's a great way to sneak so many vegetables and herbs and goodness from the healthy fats and some minerals from the salt. It's the best way to get all of this nutrients in them in one go. So I do that too. And I also do a smoothie for breakfast for Leo as well, where he gets heaps of nutrients and goodness. It's, they're a great way to just load them up on goodness. It sounds awesome. I want to come to your house and eat. <laughs> Everybody says that. My husband is an amazing cook. You are more than welcome next time you're in Australia to come over for dinner. That's for sure. That's great. Well, thank you. The, the, the invitation's mutual. You come to Ojai, California. Luckily, the town did not burn down and there's lots of great farm-to-table food here. So, Oh, beautiful. And I love that you shared your morning routine and, and I'm the same. We have weeks where we have Leo and then weeks we don't have Leo. So we have one week on and one week off. So my routines look different each week. But I love that you've mentioned meditation and gratitude because they're two big parts of my life and my routine that really set me up for success. So I'd love to hear what are three things you're most recently grateful for? Wow. Well, I'm super grateful. And I think this goes for everybody in our community. We, we literally were surrounded by this massive fire. I, I am super grateful to be alive. Um, nothing, nothing gives you more reality of life and death than seeing, uh, you know, a hundred foot tall flames approaching you and grabbing your kids and rushing out the door in a car. So I'm, I'm grateful to be alive. I'm so grateful for my family. Uh, and, and I'm grateful for the community that we have internationally, because I feel like during this time, people are coming together and banding together and learning together and building new networks of support to tackle the challenges that we have globally on on very localized level, but with powerful tools that are going to have major, major global impact. So I'm grateful for those three things. Beautiful. Now I have three little rapid fire questions for you. In your opinion, what is one of the most important things that we can do today for our health? Eat zero or as close to zero factory farmed meat as possible. Beautiful. Now, in your opinion, what is one of the most important things that we can do for more wealth in our life? So more abundance in all areas of our life. If you are looking to generate abundance in your life, find where you can give. Give money, give time, give yourself. Uh, specifically, the things that you think you lack Give those and give them freely without resent and watch watch abundance happen in your life. And what is one of the most important things that we can do for more love in our life? For me, from my personal experience, if you want more love in your life, spend time with a child. If you don't have children, spend time with a relative's child. Volunteer with children. There are so many children in need. Uh, there is nothing that will crack your heart open that will bring you more love than looking into the eyes of a child and just seeing that reciprocation of, of boundless, boundless life and love. So true and so beautiful. I just spent a week with my almost two-year-old nephew and oh my gosh, it just, it just lit me up. 
every day. So cute. Getting a wake up call at 4.30 in the morning from him didn't matter because the look in his eyes when he comes knocking on my bedroom door and calling out my name was just so beautiful. So I absolutely agree with you on that one. Fantastic. I think the the most beautiful things in life are universal, regardless of race, religion, color, you know, ethnicity, where you're born, your gender. I think the most beautiful things in life are are just human truths, you know? And finally, I have one more question for you. What is one thing that I personally and the listeners today can do to serve you? How can we help serve you and your message? Well, thank you. I, I would say get on Facebook and and just join the conversation about Kiss the Ground and the Kiss the Ground book and the Kiss the Ground movement. Start tweeting, start, start literally messaging people in your life. Have you heard about the power of soil? Hashtag kiss the ground, hashtag kiss the ground book. That is the most powerful sort of missionary viral message that you can take on. Absolutely. And we will put links to everything in the show notes. And I will definitely be doing that as well because it's so important. So I just want to thank you now for the work that you're doing in the world. I want to acknowledge you and express my gratitude for the books. And I can't wait to see the documentary. That's very exciting. But thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for your passion and for being a voice and for going out there and doing the work. I'm so grateful for people like you blazing the trail for all of us. And I personally am going to be making sure that I am an even bigger agent for change. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for all the work that you're doing in the world. You are welcome. And thank you because let's face it, it takes one to know one. You're out there. Your voice is powerful. You're reaching a tremendous number of people. So it's great to be in partnership with you. And and, and thanks for this time, Melissa. You're so welcome. And don't forget to come over for dinner next time you're in Australia. I can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Take care. Okay. You too. Thanks. Guys, I got so much out of today's conversation and I hope you did too. I personally am really going to be more mindful about asking questions when I'm at the farmer's market or when I'm at the butcher. I'm really going to be more mindful of this and I really want to encourage every single one of you for the next month to go to the farmer's market, to shop at the farmer's market and be mindful of the soil if you are growing your own food, but just get out of the supermarkets. Do it for a month and just see how you feel and be mindful of where you spend your money. It's so important. So if you got a lot out of today's episode, please subscribe and leave me a five-star review in iTunes or on your podcast app, because that means that we can inspire even more people together and we can preserve this beautiful earth that we have been gifted. And don't forget to tell me on social media, either on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, who else you would like me to have on the show. And for everything that Josh and I mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes. And that is at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 65. And you can also check out all my other podcasts there too. And just a reminder that my second book, Open Wide, A Radically Real Guide to Deep Love, Rocking Relationships and Soulful Sex is out now. And you can get your hands on a copy. All you have to do is head to melissaambrosini.com forward slash open wide. Also, tickets for our Open Wide tour are on sale. We have already kicked off the tour, which is very exciting, but we've got Adelaide and Perth coming up next, and there are still tickets available, but they're selling fast. So head to nickandmelissa.com to get your tickets today. Thank you so much for being here, beautiful, and for wanting to be the best version of yourself possible and showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from hearing this episode, I actually think every single person on this planet 
could benefit from this episode. So please share it with them right now. Take a screenshot, send them a text message, tag them, share it on your Instagram, do whatever you've got to do to get this into their ears so that we can preserve and nurture our beautiful Mama Earth. And don't forget, until next time, love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.